We spend our time here at Christ Community Church really trying to, to, to mine out what the Word of God says. So my hope as the pastor of the church and our hope as elders of the church, members of the church, is that when you walk away, what you walk away saying is what the Bible said today was not what Pastor Paul said today was. Because Pastor Paul's words are vapor. As much as I want to put meaning behind them, my words are going to easily pass away. But there is a word that never passes away. Even if heaven and earth pass away, there is a word that's going to remain. And we are focused in and drilled down on that word here. And for the summer, we're in this book of wisdom. And so we're just mining out these nuggets week by week. And this week we're in chapter 4, and we're going to begin our reading in verse 4 through chapter 5, verse 3. So would you stand with me as we read God's Word? Chapter 4, verse 4, Then I saw that all the toil and all the skill and work come from man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun, one person who has no other, either son or brother. Yet there is no end to all of his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom, I to- for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to throne, though in his own kingdom he had been been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after the wind. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know what they are doing. Be not rash with your words, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with with much business and a fool's voice with many words. You may be seated, and let's take a moment together to reflect on God's Word. Some of you will remember, because you're big fans of the sitcom Seinfeld, Some of you remember when uh, George and Jerry get together and decide they should attempt to be writers of a television show. And so they are trying to figure out, well, what what's our idea? We're going to write this sitcom, but 
we've got to have some plot. We've got to have some theme, something that sort of carries the show along. And George and Jerry are sitting in their familiar booth, if you're familiar with the, the sitcom itself, and they're trying to discuss these ideas. And George says to Jerry, Jerry, I've got an idea. And Jerry says, well, what, what's, what's, what's the show going to be about? And George says, it's about nothing. <laughs> I mean, everybody's doing shows about something. We'll just do a show about nothing. And Jerry says, so you're saying I should go to NBC and tell them I've got this idea for a show about nothing. And George says, well, that's right. And then Jerry says, you may have something there. And so they pitch this whole show and it's this whole funny theme that runs through the rest of the the show about an an idea, a show, a life uh, displayed uh, that really equals nothing. And perhaps in some odd way, Koheleth, the preacher, the, the, the teacher of Ecclesiastes, he was having a very similar conversation, internal conversation in his own mind, thinking, hey, maybe I should write a book. Well, what should I write a book about? Everybody's writing about something. Why don't I just write about nothing? And so in a sense, that's what he's come up with. He's come up with a book about nothing. In other words, if you live your life underneath the sun and we just take all of your life, all of your human experiences, all of your human emotions, and we put it all together and all there is is what's underneath the sun, then we, when we add it all up, it adds, all adds up to, to nothing. And his hope is that by looking at your life under the sun and saying, when I add it all up, it really equals nothing. There's got to be something out there or there's got to be someone out there actually beyond the sun that gives meaning to my life under the sun. So that's really the purpose of Ecclesiastes. That's the purpose of the of the writer Koheleth. And he says right in his opening statement, chapter one, verse two, vanity of vanity, all is vanity. Life is a, a vapor. It's a mist. It's it's meaningless. And then he has this rhetorical question in the next verse. What does man gain by all the toil which he toils under the sun? It's all vanity. I'm just telling you, it's all vanity. I mean, I'm looking around and I'm looking at all these people work. But, but what's all the gain for? Answer, not, nothing. If it's just under the sun, it all equals nothing. And so far in our study of Ecclesiastes, the preacher has shown us a couple of weeks ago in chapter 2 that the pursuit of pleasure terminates in nothingness. Yeah, for a moment, you look like a rock star. You've got it all together. You've got what everybody wants. But remember what he says in the end. I hated my life. I was in despair. Chapter three, we looked at last week, this beautiful poem. We, we called them, remember, the mirrorisms, these, these two things. It's, there's a time to be born and a time to die. It means the, the whole life. And we looked at these 14 sentences or these, these 14 uh, pluses and 14 minuses. And really, when you get to the end, the answer to the poem is it all adds up to nothing. If if all of these experiences are added up and all of it is just underneath the sun, then it all is nothing. And so in some sense, today's episode here in chapter four and verse five is about work. So each 
each section as we go through this summer is just, hey, let's just take something that people chase after to try to find meaning in their life, pleasure, how they order their lives or how they feel like they're in control of their lives. Verse chapter three. And then today work or the word is used is toil. And this morning's episode really breaks down into two different parts. First, there's a sickness verses four through eight. And then he gives his solution to the sickness. And you'll see it, his, the way his, he writes his prescription, so to speak, is the word better. You see that? Verse 6, verse 9, verse 13, verse, verse 1 of chapter 5, better. So he, he's saying there's a sickness, I'm going to identify the sickness, and then I'm going to give you the solution. The solution is better. And so there's a lot of um, information here in this sermon. And, and probably the best way, I think, to learn, listen to the sermon is to listen to the one or maybe two things that you feel like the Lord's trying to zero in on your life. I mean, at some point, they'll all have some impact. But I would say today, you're just going to be able to say, hey, you know, when I came to church, this was the one thing I felt like this preacher of Ecclesiastes was talking to me specifically. So let's think of it in that way. And we'll start with the sickness. The sickness of every human soul is probably best described by the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter one, where he says this, for although they humanity, although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. And although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images to make images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. So instead of getting our meaning, instead of getting our value from God, we made this exchange and we we exchange that for uh, things that are on the earth, horizontal things. We exchanged it for power or pleasure or possessions or people. When, when we abandoned God, we became incredibly insecure. We were getting all of our value and meaning from God and he was giving us eternal value and meaning. But when we cut that cord, we became very insecure and we had to find something else to latch on to, something else that would give us value. And of course, we made images that look like ourselves or other people to give us that. And that's vaporous. The Bible calls that idolatry. And one primary idolatry is work. There are many, but one primary idolatry. When you've given up giving, get, getting your value from the Lord and you look out there and say, I've got to find some value that makes me feel good about myself, that I have value, that I have meaning, that I'm adding something to the society. So many times people find work is that thing. And so they get their identity, they get their value from work itself and it becomes an idolatry. But our lives are hollow without the Lord and we've got to give them some sort of substance. And so, so frequently we find work is the same thing that seems to temporarily fill up our hollow lives. And you'll see these three uh, symptoms of the sickness. Let's look at the first one. Verse four. Then I saw that all toil and all skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. So the preacher, probably Solomon, he's looking around and he's just making this uh, uh, identification. 
I see all these people working, but it seems like their motive for work is really generated by envy. Uh, Envy is, I'm discontent with your success. I look at you and say, "Well, well, why are you so successful? Why did you get that and I don't have that? And then I become sour and I look at you and I, I just I'm not I'm not just hap, unhappy that I don't have it. I'm unhappy that you have it and I don't. And I become envious. I resent that things are going well for you and they're not going well for me. So let's just stop here and just you just try to think about this symptom maybe in your own life. I'm discontent with the success of other people. I resent that things are going well for you and not for me. That's his first sickness. That's the first symptom of this sickness of idolatry of work. The, 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 the person didn't even pay attention to the Proverbs, Proverbs 1430. A heart at peace gives life to the body, but envy rots the bones. See, envy is like steroids. You take it and immediately it looks good. It looks impressive on the outside. You make a big impression, but it's really it's really rotting your soul. Or we know from Galatians five that envy not only rots the bones, it 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 hunts in a pack. It's never alone. Paul says this in Galatians five. The works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, idolatry, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalry, dissensions, division and envy. See, if you're struggling with envy, it's you're struggling against more than one force, one foe, one enemy. Envy comes in a pack. It may be the lead dog in the pack, but you've got all kinds of other things that are coming at you and you're having to fight against at the same time. And so Koheleth is looking at this and he couldn't be any clearer that if your motive for working is so that you can be a little bit better than your neighbor, so that people could look at you the way you've been looking at other people to say, oh, well, they've got that. They've got that. If that's your motive, then it's vanity. It's vapor. It's chasing after the wind. I love the way Dave Ramsey says it in his financial peace class. We buy things we don't need with money we don't have to impress people we don't like. <laughs> we, we just buy things that we don't need. And plus, I don't have the money, so I've got to borrow the money. But why am I doing that? I'm doing out of envy. I want to drive up to the stoplight and have people go, whoa, now, look at that car. I want to step out and people say, wow, that's, that's the, the newest fashion. I want to have the right watch. I want to have the right degree. I want to have whatever it is that would make you feel like I'm just a little bit better. I'm just a little bit ahead of everybody else, especially my neighbor. And Koheleth, the preacher, is saying that's that's just chasing after the wind. Don't you realize that that in a neighborhood, somebody just upgraded their kitchen? I mean, no matter how recently you upgraded yours, just a neighbor has just upgraded theirs. No matter how quickly you can consume technology, you do realize, don't you? That it's, it's just a whole scheme out there, isn't it? It's just there's another breaking device that, oh, gosh, I'm sorry, you didn't get 6.0. You're stuck with the dinosaur 5.0. 
It's just a chasing after the wind. Somebody just got back from a shopping spree. Somebody just purchased the latest piece of technology. The cars are always new that have something. So if your motive is to keep up, you're, you're chasing after the wind. So that's the first symptom of this sickness. That, that work has become an idolatry and you know it. You see the symptom because really you just can't be happy that somebody else is succeeding. Second symptom, verses 7 and 8. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other. He doesn't have a son. He doesn't have a brother. Yet, there's no end to all his toils. His eyes are never satisfied with riches. And he never asks, who am I working for? Why am I depriving myself of all this pleasure? So the second symptom... Koheleth gives us a picture of a compulsive, solitary moneymaker. A compulsive, solitary moneymaker. He's compulsive because there's no end to his toil. His eyes are never satisfied. Most of you have heard, heard the quote from John D. Rockefeller. How much is enough? John D. Rockefeller was probably the richest man in America about 100 years ago. And his estimated wealth was 2% of the gross domestic product of all of the United States of America. And that may not seem like a lot in some ways, but if you compare that today, 2% of all of the gross domestic product in America today, if you just own 2%, you would have $320 billion. And when they asked John D. Rockefeller, who had an equivalent of $320 billion, how much is enough and what was his answer? Just a little bit more. Here's a man who has $320 billion and his eyes aren't satisfied. He needs just a little bit more. And you might say to yourself, wow, this man had a problem. I mean, if I had $320 billion, I wouldn't need a little bit more. But I would say that this attitude is reflective of most people, is it not? I just need a little bit more and then I would be satisfied. But see, the problem is the goalposts keep moving. And as soon as you get a little bit more, what do you say? Oh, but if I just had a little bit more. And we think if we just arrived at some number like three hundred and twenty billion, surely you wouldn't say it. But see, he's got the same disease that we have. Our eyes are never satisfied. We just need a little bit more in some way. And so he's this compulsive moneymaker. His eyes are always on what he doesn't have, not on what he has. And so if you say to yourself, well, I'm the person who who really does need a little bit more. You have that sickness. You have that same symptom and there is no dollar amount. There is no amount of materialism that you can gain and not get rid of that sickness. I just need a little bit more. You're caught in the same trap. And look at verse nine. You're in an unhappy business. Why? Because you never arrive. Everything's always just around the corner. Your life, your happiness, for your fulfillment, everything is, 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 if I could just get, and as soon as you just get, the, as soon as you graduate, as soon as you get that first job, as soon as you get your first, soon, life's always around the corner. You never arrive, so you're, 
you're you're in an unhappy business. And then notice the compulsive person. He's not he's not just compulsive. He's a solitary person. His idolatry of work and wealth have had a corrosive effect both on his relationships and his reasoning. You see that in the text? He's one person who has no other. He's completely isolated. He doesn't have he doesn't have a brother. He doesn't have a son. He has no family. He's just this compulsive work. And all he has is work. He doesn't have any kind of connection to anybody else. I read uh, this week about a businessman who died at age 51 of a heart attack. He had a there was a column written about him in another newspaper. And it was said that he lived at his office six, seven days a week, 12, 14 hour days. And his friends and family said he worked himself to death, even though the cause of his death was a heart attack. And on the day of his funeral, the, the, the funeral, the company was making plans for his replacement. So here's a man who's worked six and seven days a week. Two or three days after his death. People are gathered in the lobby. They're going to come in and have this funeral. And while we're in the lobby, two or three people are going, hey, who's going to take Joe's place? Sort of reminds me of Ecclesiastes chapter one. Generations come and generations go. And there's no remembrance of them. See, even at your own funeral, people are going to say, well, Paul was great, but hey, who's next? It's just we're just constantly moving forward. There's never any stopping except for just a moment, maybe 30 minutes in a funeral to appreciate. And then it's generations come, generations go. You spread out on the timeline of your horizon thinking, I'm going to make my mark. And then you quickly recede and another generation comes and and you're completely forgotten. Probably the saddest part of the article was someone asked his wife, I know how much you're going to miss your husband. And her reply is, I've been missing him for a long time. See, he was this compulsive, solitary person. Work had dominated him. He'd lost connection with his family, his friends. It also has a corrosive effect on his reasoning. See, he never even stops to ask, why am I working so hard? I mean, he's disconnected to his family. He's disconnected to his own reasoning. He never stops and says, I'm not even having any fun doing this. I'm not getting any pleasure from this. I'm just working and working, and I'm so focused on work, I don't even have time to be quiet and think about these bigger questions. I'm so consumed. Third and final symptom that that work in some way, some warped way, has become an idol. It's what's giving you meaning. And it's really the polar opposite of the first two. You see it in verse 5. The fool. This is the, the third symptom, different than the first two. The fool folds his hands. Look at this imagery. And he eats his own flesh. The fool folds his hands. He can work, but he refuses to work. See, he has the ability to use his hands. He has the ability to work, but he just decides, I'm not going to work. And because he does that, he swings to this other end of the spectrum. Instead of being this compulsive worker, he drops out altogether. The consequence of that is he he eats himself. 
He, he, he consumes all his savings. He, he eats up all the generosity of his friends and his family. He eats up everything in his pantry, and at the end, he consumes himself. One commentator said this, Toil can be all-consuming. Idleness is self-cannibalizing. See, you, you can be cannibalized by your work or your laziness or your idleness. And so these are all the symptoms that you have a problem with work. And so it's worth just sort of pausing here. And, we're, of course, we're not very good at self-diagnosis. We always give ourselves a better checkup than we deserve. But if you could just for a moment think, what's my primary motive for work? Am I mostly trying to compare myself, make myself feel better, make myself get a little bit more than my neighbor? Maybe this is a good diagnostic question. When somebody else is successful, can you rejoice in that success or do you resent that success? Is there any corrosion in your relationships or your reasoning because of your work? Have you folded your hands? You could do more. You could work. But you've decided to drop out. Well, that's this. That's the sickness. And then fortunately, the preacher gives us these solutions and you see him in these words. Better. Better is. Look at verse six. Better is a handful of quietness than two handfuls of toil and a striving after the wind. What a great picture, a great proverb of someone who's found balance in his life. It's just better instead of always grasping. I've always got to have this. It's like this person reaching out. I've got to have two handfuls of life. It's better just to have one handful that you're working hard at. But then in the other hand, you have quietness. You have some peace in your life. One scholar says the preacher has moved from the industrious man who thinks money will bring him peace to the idle man who thinks doing nothing will bring him peace. And finally, to the integrated man who has found peace in negotiating a balance between work and rest. Is that how you would describe yourself? Is that how your wife would describe you? He's the integrated person. Yes, he, he's got one hand full of work. He's out there working, but there's one hand of rest. There's one hand of some kind of quiet reflection. This, this quiet reflection creates a barrier against envy. It boosts relationships. It brings balance and so, quietness. Does that describe you in some way? You have some space, you have some margin in your life, or, or as your work fills out your whole life, and, and nothing can ever go wrong because then you, you never have any margin, you never have any time. Better, second, better. See this in verse 9 through 12. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow, but... Woe to him who is alone when he falls. Again, if two lie down together, they can keep warm. Although one might prevail against an enemy alone, it's better to have two to fight with you. So it's better to be in a committed community, better to be on a team rather than to be alone. And you see these three examples the preacher supplies. He puts up his PowerPoint and he says, first of all, it's better if you fall down that you have somebody to pick you up. You ever heard of the guy? You ever remember the guy's name, Aaron Ralston? Aaron Ralston. If you don't remember his name, you'll remember his story. Mountain climber. Decided to go mountain climbing all by himself. 
never told anybody that he was going mountain climbing. And he was kind of down in this cavern and this suspended boulder that looked safe shifted. Caught his right arm, pinned his right arm against the rock wall. And what happened? Stayed there for five days hoping that somebody would find him. Of course, nobody was even looking for him. He had fallen and he couldn't get up. So what did he have to do? Cut his own arm off. Do you remember that? Imagine that. He takes a dull knife, cuts off his arm, walks out of the canyon. Woe to the man who has fallen down by himself. Imagine how much agony could have been saved just by one other person being there. Even if that person couldn't have done anything, they could have run, run to get help for somebody. And so that's what Kohel is saying, saying it's so much better to be on a team. It's so much better to have a partnership. It's so much better to be there because you in your life's journey, you are going to fall down. And you're going to need somebody to help you back up and you're going to need to be that person as well. Second thing. A partnership certainly helps when it's freezing cold. I don't know if you've been camping in bitter cold. But if you've been camping in bitter cold, you want to get into the tent that has the most bodies in it. And you don't care who's in it. You just say, all bodies in this tent, and then I'm going to dive in the middle. Right? Because it's bitter cold, and you want just all this body heat around you. So much better to be in that situation. Because if you're, if you've fallen or you're freezing, you need somebody else. And if you've fallen or you're freezing or you're having to fight, you need somebody else as well. Butch Cassidy gets a lot farther with the Sundance Kid, does he not? I don't know if you watched any of the, um, the Hobbit movies. And I, what I love about the Hobbit movies is this little team of people. And they're against all incredible great odds. You know, they can't possibly fight all this uh, evil that's coming against them. And every, I don't know, 20 minutes in the movie, there's some epic battle scene that's happening, usually against these things that are called orcs. You know what or orcs are? just gross sort of oily creatures that come out of the earth. They're really disgusting. And so they're always fighting against these disgusting enemies. And every battle scene, one of the main characters is just about ready to get, you know, his throat cut off. And what happens? An arrow from a team member takes out the orc. Happens every, I mean, you, you see it 30 times in the movie and you go, yes, every time. I mean, you're so glad that, that, that they're together. You remember uh, Frodo? Carrying the ring. What's his friend's name? What is it? Yeah. And he says, I can't carry the ring. Right? I can't carry the ring. You've got to carry that. But what does he say? It's greatest line. But I can carry you. See, I, I, I can't. Carry your burden. You've got to carry that burden. I, I wish I could, but I can do something. I can carry you. When you can't go further, when you've fallen and you can't get back up, when you're spiritually frozen and you need somebody to warm you up, when, when you're fighting against your own sin, when you're fighting against an enemy, somebody's got to come in and have your back. And this was, this was a providentially great sermon for the text for the day that people join the church. Because this is a great example of what the church is supposed to be. 
All of these people, as wonderful as they are, they're all going to fall. They're all going to get cold spiritually at some point. They're all going to fight. And they're saying, would you help me? And that's what we said today. We're going to help. They, they've made a vow to connect their lives to you. And you've made a vow to connect your lives to them. So that if you fall or if you're freezing or you're fighting, they're going to help you. And the same is going to happen. That's what we're supposed to be, ideally, as a church, to help one another. And it's so much better that way than trying to do it alone. A lot of times you hear this at the end of this section, the three, four, threefold cord is not quickly broken. You hear that at weddings a lot. The idea that these two people are joining themselves together and this third cord is the Holy Spirit or God who's never going to leave you, never going to forsake you. He's going to wrap his life around yours so you're not quickly broken. Third, better, verse 13. Better. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. Better to be poor and teachable than rich and foolish. What makes the king fool a fool? He stopped taking advice. Have you stopped taking advice? See, the king had people that come to him and give reports. I think you ought to do this or something happening. When they came to him, his mind said, no vacancy. I'm not, I'm not taking any advice. I'm done. Are you 16, 17, 18? Your parents come to you. Hey, no vacancy. <laughs> I, I, you know, I got it now. I'm 16. You could be 22. You could be 82. What a terrible picture the, the, the preacher has. Here's the most powerful person who's doing the stupidest thing. He's the king and he's not taking advice. It's better. Proverbs 15. Plans fail for a lack of counsel, but with many advisors they succeed. It's, it's better to be poor and teachable than to be a rich fool. Finally, it's, it's better, chapter 5, verse 1. Guard your steps when you come into the house of God. Draw near to listen. Draw near to listen. It's better. It's better to draw near to listen than to offer a sacrifice of fools. They don't even know what they're doing. They're, they're rash with their mouth. They're hasty to utter a word. They don't really get that God's in heaven and they're on earth. They like to have their verbal overflow. They're, they're, I've, I've used this illustration before. My wife teaches a study skills class with a, sometimes with younger kids. And a lot of times with younger kids, they don't know how to not talk. And so she has this great book, and it's such a great photo. I should bring it sometime. And it's this little kid, maybe he's eight or nine, and it is, his mouth is wide open and lava is coming out of it. And the title of, of the book is, My Mouth is a Volcano. I just have verbal overflow. I, I can't stop talking. My words are so important. You've got to listen to what I have to say. And Koheleth, the preacher, is saying, no verbal overflow. When you come into the house of God, let your words be few. 
Now, some of you might say, I've heard some sermons where I thought the preacher should have, you know, taken this to heart. Not here. I'm just saying other places you've heard this. But he's saying, guard your guard your steps, not just guard your steps, guard your mouth. Be be draw in to listen rather than than to come in to give instructions to God. To give orders to God. To give complaints to God. It might be a good time just to evaluate your own prayers. Do, do you come in to listen or do you come in to complain? Do you come in to listen or do you come to give orders? Draw, draw near. Let your words be few. You remember when Jesus is teaching his own disciples in Matthew 6 how to pray. And he says this, when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites. They love to pray in order to be seen by others. But when you pray, don't keep on babbling like the pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. You don't do that. Let your words be few. The, the preacher of Ecclesiastes ends his letter appropriately in chapter 12. He says this, uh, of the making of many books, if he were alive today, he would say, of the making of many blogs, there is no end. And much study is weariness. In other words, so many words. The end of the matter, when everything has been heard, fear God, keep his word. See, let's not be worried about your word. Let's worry about God's word. Let's listen to him. Remember this uh, great moment, but such a tough moment if you're Peter. I just feel sorry for Peter because he's just the whipping boy for opening your mouth and inserting your foot. It's the transfiguration. So it's Peter, James and John and Jesus. They're going to the top of this mountain. A cloud descends. Jesus turns some sort of radiant white Two figures show up on the mountain of figuration. Remember, Elijah and Moses. And so Jesus, Elijah and Moses are having this conversation. And some, you know, some distance back is Peter, James and John. And Peter says uh, in in that particular place, he says, uh, you know, Jesus, um, it's, it's good for us to be here. I mean, if you wish, we can put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. I love how the text writes it while Peter was still speaking. A bright cloud enveloped them and a voice from the cloud said. Now, I think it says, shut your yapper, Peter. That's what I think it says. Peter, shut up. Nobody's here for your word. Do you understand what's happening here? This is an incredible, eternal, divine moment. We don't need anything from you right now. Just, and what does he say? What does God say? This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Trust his word, not your word. So there's a lot here. You might have just gotten stuck on envy. That was the one thing I work out of envy. I just look, I can't rejoice when other people get be, are successful. Okay, well, we're going to deal with that. Better one hand of quietness than two hands full of toil. 
Maybe it's just this last point. Whatever it is for you, I pray that God's Holy Spirit would work it into your heart and into your lives.